We're going to continue in the first letter of John. So it's first John chapter two. And I'll, I'll begin from verse three. We read that we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in, love, in him and you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's just pray together. Father, we want to thank you again today for your word. Thank you that we know that you always have truth that you want to bring from your word. Thank you that we know that every time we come as your people, that if our hearts are open, that you're ready to come and share with us the truth that we need, the truth we need to hear, and the truth that we need to put into practice in our lives. So, Lord, be, be with us today. Speak to us and lead us more and more into your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are back again then in this, this first letter of John. And again, we'll be looking in this letter today at some very important practical areas of life. But before we can move into that, though, I think it's necessary in order that we might be able to adequately understand what we're, we're looking at, that I just again lay a bit of a foundation and, and pick out one or two relevant back to, background details and, and very briefly just go over them and, and re-emphasize them just so that we can set what's going to be said this morning in, in a, a meaningful context. So let's just remember again then the situation into which John wrote this letter. And that is a situation where there were some false teachers that have become known through history as Gnostics. We'll explain that in a minute. But these false teachers had infiltrated the church. 
And just to sum up their, their false teaching as briefly as we can, well, its main tenet was that they emphasized experience over doctrine. They denied many of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, and particularly the fact of the incarnation, the fact that God truly became a man, was truly made flesh in Jesus Christ, with this then having a, a devastating effect on their understanding of many other areas of doctrine, and certainly had a devastating effect on their lifestyle, on their moral standards, on their basic holiness of life. And yet, despite all this, what these men said is that we have an experience of God, that we have a knowledge of God. For Gnosis is the, the Greek word for knowledge, hence they're called Gnostics. We have this experience, this knowledge that is unparalleled. So if you come to us and take part in our initiation rites and our ceremonies, if you experience what we have, then you too can have a, a knowledge, a similar experience of God. And don't worry about doctrine. Don't worry about all that truth stuff, all that understanding your Bible and understanding your faith. Don't worry about all this talk about sin and holy living. Don't worry about that. That's just for the simple and the ignorant. That's for the immature, for the uninitiated. Instead, just come along with us. Be part of our in-group. Experience what we experience, and you will experience more of God and know more of God than you can now possibly imagine. That was the situation into which John wrote. Let's remember also, though, the resultant purpose for which this letter then was written, and that was to reassure some people whose sense of, of experience of God had been diluted and yet who genuinely knew God, to reassure these Christians, simple yet worthy Christians, whose sense of assurance of their faith was being shaken to the very foundation by what these men said. Christians who were saying, my experience isn't what others, what they claim theirs to be. Therefore, isn't perhaps what it should be. So I wonder, am I really a Christian? Or if I am, because of my lack of some kind of experience, because I haven't experienced what they have, am I some kind of inferior, low-grade, spiritually impoverished believer? John wrote then to reassure these people. But he also wrote to alert others those false teachers, and also those who were being influenced by them, to the fact that their experience of God, their claimed knowledge of God, was not in fact what they claimed. Instead, it was to the contrary. It was a falsehood. It was a delusion that was either more or less devilishly inspired. But you know, that may seem to, to some of us, I don't know, it might seem a very bold thing for somebody like me to say, even perhaps an outrageous thing to say, to write off someone else's claimed experience of God. 
I mean, it's the most incredible thing imaginable that, that someone should claim that they know God. It is incredible. But as Christians who believe in a personal God, who believe in this possibility of an experience of God in contrast to the world around us, well, how then can we question, never mind of the temerity, to write off a claim of this kind? Well, what John tells us here, I believe, is that this can be done. And that not everyone who claims to know God actually does know God. I'm bringing this down just a little bit. Not everything that even a genuine Christian claims is of God in their life is necessarily, truly of Him. And we can tell, and we can test the genuine from the spurious. Well, how do we do that? Well, there are two main types of tests, I believe, of the things of faith that are generally accepted in the world around. One is to do with feelings and the other with experience. You know, feelings are basic gut-level reaction to something. You know, kind of like, I like that person. I like his face, his personality. I like the ties he wears or doesn't wear or the shirts he wears. I like the way he speaks because he, he shares what he's got to say with, with passion and, and conviction and forcefulness. I haven't really thought a lot about the content of what he's saying, but that doesn't really matter. I'm kind of convinced. I like it. I'm drawn in by it. I know it'll be all right. This is right. This is for me. Tested experience of feelings. The other type of test, though, is to do with facts and with hard evidence. The concern here not being with the, the passion of someone's speech or the extravagance of what they claim or even the plausibility of how they might explain it. No, but rather the concern here is facts, is truth. The evidence of what this claim experience in fact produces in their life in terms of what is real and lasting and of spiritual worth. Now, um, I hope, and I'm sure you won't be too surprised when I'll tell you, that I'm convinced that the, the test that these Gnostic teachers here would have opted for would have been that test of feelings, that first series of tests. For they would have been, I'm sure, charming and persuasive and confident. They would have promised you the earth, if you can put it that way, in terms of spiritual experience. And they'd have said, don't worry about this fact stuff. Just go along with us. You can feel it. Just carry on. Come with us. But John, you see, he actually opts for the second of these two options. He says that the ultimate test of that which is spiritual lies not in feelings, not in experience, but in facts, in truth, that can be tried and can be tested. And this, incidentally, by the way, not being because John denied the place and importance of, of feeling and experience and emotion in the Christian's life, not at all, because as you read through his gospel and his letters, it's just blatantly obvious that John, above all the other New Testament writers, treasured the experience of the life of the Spirit. However, John's position, in common, I believe, with Jesus and that of the other New Testament writers, 
John's position is that the knowledge, the experience of God that someone claims has to have a basis in biblical fact and has to then lead to observable spiritual fruit. Because as Jesus said, I think we've already quoted this already as we've looked at this letter of 1 John, as Jesus said in, in Matthew 7, 20, it's by their fruit. That is, it's by the observable things that we see in their life. It's by their deeds. It's by the way that they live that you will recognize them. That is, true teachers and true believers. Not everyone, he says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is not everyone who claims much for themselves. But, and it's deeds again, only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, as far then of, of, as the testing of, of spiritual things is concerned, this then is the nature of the testing that I believe John calls for, Jesus calls for, the Bible calls for. Facts first, not feelings. Where what we claim is measured not by the extravagance or the vehemence, the enthusiasm of our claims, but rather is measured by the fact that what we claim actually emerges from and lines up with biblical truth and then leads on to spiritual fruit. Well, as far as these tests themselves, these tests of, of fact, if you like, of truth are concerned, I believe John outlines three for us here in chapter 2. I want us to look at, but we've only got time to look at, at two of them just now. The final test that's contained in verses 15 to 17 is, is really too big and too substantial a topic for us just to gather it in with everything else. So we're going to look at that maybe the next time that we gather together. But for now, let's look at the tests of faith, just at the first two here, tests of faith. And the first one we're going to look at relates to something that we began just to touch on last week, but we've got the opportunity now just to open up a little bit and develop. For this first test of the truth of our faith is the test of obedience. The test of obedience, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And what this is saying, quite simply, is that the God of, a Bible, of the Bible is a holy God. He's a moral God. He's a totally sinless God. And that if we have come to know such a God, if we've come to trust in him and he has come into our lives in power, then that should show itself then in our lives by the fact that we live holy, moral, lives separate from sin. Life's not where we're perfect. We're not saying that because perfection isn't a possibility that's held out for us in the Bible. And we looked at this in some detail last week, so we're not going to labor it. So no, not that. But where our desire, our life's desire above all else is to be obedient to God. Where we may maybe commit the odd isolated acts or acts of sin every now and again, sin rears its head. 
but where sin will most certainly never again be what it once was. That is the consistent, dominant life characteristic of the way we live our lives. And you know, this fact of there being a, a, a necessary link between the holiness of the God that we claim to know and our own lives in terms of us living a life of holiness and obedience, this is, it, it, this is right in there. It's in at the very roots of the Bible. It's right in at the very heart of the Old Testament. For example, in Hosea, where Hosea the prophet complains that there is no knowledge of God in the land at that time, in the land of Israel. And immediately, he follows this up straight away with what he sees as being the undeniable proof of this. And that is in verse 2, he says, there is only cursing and lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. But also how clearly and strongly this is here underlined by John. How clearly he underlines this. This simple fact that our God is a holy God. Our God is a sinless God who hates sin. And that should show itself. That should be reflected in our lives too. I mean, the, the holiness of God is, is stressed in the, in the title that's given here to Jesus. Verse 1, he talks of the righteous one. The righteous one. And God's hatred of sin is, is made abundantly clear by the fact that he hated it so much that he had to send his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of our sin. Verse 2, it says, he is the atoning sacrifice. He's the one who makes payment for our sins. So you see, anyone who ever says that they know God and who yet at the same time isn't striving to live a holy and obedient life or is even perhaps going as far as to deny that life is important. Well, that person, the Bible tells us, is a liar. As simple as that. And the experience that they might claim of God, that experience is false. That experience is counterfeit. Maybe not deliberately, because it's so easy to be self-deluded. It's so easy for people to confuse their emotions with a genuine work of the Spirit to get mixed up between what we would like to happen and what has actually happened or is happening. But as John, as he again, as he says, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. And if you want an example, there's lots we could draw to this kind of arena, but what about, well, two of the American TV evangelists from a few years ago, Jim Baker, it's still going on today though, and Jimmy Swaggart. These two men, they were the big thing on TV in the 1990s. One ended up in prison, and the other was publicly disgraced. The one in prison actually repented, and I was happy about that, but anyway, day after day though, these men, they were up on American television proclaiming to the world, to the whole United States, but to the world with satellite TV, speaking of their closeness to God, their experience of God, their knowledge of God, and then saying to the public out there, if you want this same kind of experience, 
then write to us, phone in to us, and we'll tell you how. But don't forget your donation. Don't forget that. But all the time, these men were involved in, in financial wrongdoing, sexual wrongdoing, adultery, fraud, and whatever else. All the time, they were on TV saying, we can show you how to get that experience of God you long for. What I want to tell you again, though, is that if someone is involved in consistent, characteristic sin of that kind, where it's not just the odd fault or failing, but where that is just their life, the way they live day by day, it's a lie through and through. When someone's living like that, I don't care what they claim. The fact is that they have are having no genuine experience of God. They may sincerely believe that they are. I think too often it's not that sincere, but they may. But if that is the case, then they, I'm afraid, are sincerely misled. Because the Bible tells me, God tells me, that is just not possible. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you there are, are, are thinking, isn't all this talk that we're hearing here about obedience and the need for holiness, this kind of stuff, isn't it all a bit narrow-minded? Isn't it a bit, you know, yesterday's kind of emphasis? Isn't it legalistic? Isn't it all the talk and the theology that's going around today, the, the conferences that we hear of today, isn't it all about living life led by the Spirit? Isn't that what life's all about now? Isn't it just about doing what love demands? Isn't that what's happening with all the, the gender talk that's beginning to influence the church? It's let's be loving. Let's do what love demands. Well, you know, certainly that's true. That is what's going on. But for me, what that exposes is one of the root problems in a lot of Christianity today. And that is that too often we set in opposition things that actually properly belong together. For the, the guidance that God gives in the Bible about holiness and obedience, say things like the Ten Commandments, another clear-cut, black-and-white sections of instruction in the New Testament. These aren't supposed to be, never intended to be, set in opposition, another alternative to the life of love and the life of the Spirit. Now, what these actually are these are expressions of the demands of love and expressions of the demands of the Spirit. Because, you see, it's only as we obey God and walk with God in the black and white areas of life, follow His Word, where His Word speaks clearly, and thus build up a life of holiness. It's only by doing this that we then build up and cultivate the kind of discernment and maturity that will then enable us to do what is truly love and to do what the Spirit actually demands, to follow in the way that the Spirit actually is leading in the grey and uncertain areas of life. So please, don't set obedience to the Word and the holiness that produces in opposition to love and the life of the Spirit because the two most certainly belong together. And please, don't be deceived into imagining that really living the life of the Spirit 
is about following a whole set of irrational, nebulous impulses because that is not so. Rather, the life of the Spirit has got its roots set in a mind and a character that has been fashioned and formed by obedience to God and obedience to His Word. Anyway, that's the first test of whether a claimed spiritual experience, whether a claimed knowledge of God is truly of the Lord, the test of obedience. The second test we'll move on to look at just for a few minutes now, and this is the test of love. That's the second test, the test of love. For as John tells us here, verse 9 and 10, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But let me just make, to start off here, one or two observations about love, mainly from John's teaching, but maybe moving a little bit at times beyond that. And the first observation I want to make is that love is the first and most important commandment. And that's why John says that I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. That's so, because the command to love is in itself not new. It's not new. It has its roots in the Old Testament. And, of course, was reaffirmed because this was in at the very roots of the teaching of Jesus too. Because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? What was his reply? His reply was, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So John says then, these false teachers are apparently offering you all sorts of exciting new experiences that they say you have to move on from, the old stuff. But he says, I can only offer you the same old command, the same old command to love. But there is something new in this command. For John goes on to say, yet, verse 8, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Well, isn't that kind of strange? That John has just said that he's writing us a new command. Yet here he says that it's also something new. Strange, but you know, Jesus actually said something very similar. He did, because Jesus knew, as we've mentioned, that the command to love is, is as old, basically, as the Scriptures themselves. Jesus knew that. And yet, Jesus said, in John 13, 34, he said, A new command I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. So that in what sense does this old command to love become new in Jesus Christ? Well, it becomes new in the sense of its, its quality and, and its range, if you like. Guys, it's not just love anymore for the lovable. It's not just love for those who are like us, those who are easy to love. No, rather, this love is also now 
for the outcast, the unlovable, for the stranger, and those who are far from God. That's the new love of Jesus. Yes, and this love is new also in terms of, of our ability. Because you see, as Jesus Christ comes to live in us by the Spirit of God, then as Jesus lives in us, the miracle is that he enables us to love as he loves. He gives us the power and the strength and the grace to love like he does. And you see, it's the presence of this love of Christ within us. This love for the unlovely. This love that just keeps on loving without any thought of reward. It's this agape love, this unique love of Jesus Christ. It's this, this, that is the ultimate proof that we have passed from darkness to light in Jesus Christ. That we truly are part of God's new age that has dawned in him. Again in verse 8. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. As you see, love really is the ultimate, the dead giveaway of where we really are spiritually. Because if someone is not able to love the unlovely, if in their pride they think of themselves and therefore put themselves before others, and so by doing this they show that that love of Jesus is not in them, as undoubtedly these false teachers what John was talking to did very much because they were known to be full of spiritual pride. Well then no matter what anyone might claim to know of God, no matter how close they might claim to be to God, yet if they're not able to love like Jesus loves, the reality is that they actually know little or nothing of him. Because, you see, love really is, in a sense, the heart of God. It captures the heart of God. So if we then have not love, if we have nothing of God's heart, nothing of the essence of who God really is, then how can we really know God? As John says, verse 9 and 10, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother, and that's a Jewish figure of speech that means really he doesn't love his brother, that person is still in the darkness. Whoever though loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I just want to finish just by saying to you that God doesn't want anyone, any of his people, to be unwise and undiscerning as they live out their spiritual life. God doesn't want you just to accept what people claim and say because there may be powerful, persuasive characters or, or whatever else. God doesn't want that of his people. He wants you to test spiritual claims, 
claims made by any Christian, claims made by anybody, whether from this pulpit or wherever, be they old or young, mature or immature, doesn't matter. God wants you to test them by their loyalty to his word. To test them. To make sure that the one who's making the claim is actually demonstrating true Christian character. God wants us as Christians to be that kind of Christian. With his help, may each of us seek to be that kind of wise and discerning believer. Let's come and pray. Father, we want to thank you that through your word you give us everything we need to live a true Christian life, not just personally, but to be able to look on and to assess what we're hearing, what we're seeing, to assess what we're experiencing. And Father, we pray that we will look for people to be living holy lives, to be teaching truth that reflects your holiness, and to live lives and teach truth that speaks of your love, not of pride or self, but of that self-given, sacrificial love seen so wonderfully in Jesus. Lord, help us as your people to walk close to you. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.